Greetings, church and friends of the church. It is a wintry Mother's Day weekend, 2020, just when we thought this year could not be any stranger. Um, this is our ninth, I think, weekend um, in this season strangeness, season in the wilderness where we're isolated and disconnected from um, normal. This is uh, the next in a series of reflections on life together in the wilderness. Um, we've reflected so far on the importance of being present in this time to God, self, and other. Um, the importance of paying attention to any empathy that is stirred within us during this time. Um, the importance of having our eyes open to learn about privilege that many of us have in our life together, being aware of that, um, where it is and how, how we can extend that to those who lack it. We've thought about control and how uh, God the creator and sustainer is in control of divine things, but yet we have human agency and we, we have the ability and the, and the, and the calling and uh, the obligation to, to control what we can control for the sake of something bigger than ourselves. We've We've thought about trajectory and how we can't go back because going back to, um, to what we knew as normal before means going back to a place that um, was not a place of well-being for all people. We have to keep going. Uh, we talked about and thought about the need for adaptation and creativity as we move forward into a new normal, um, knowing that old solutions don't address current or future realities. And we've considered and reflected upon these natural tendencies that evolve to be a part of the human experience, the reactivity, fight or flight mechanism, our negativity bias, and our compulsion to tribalism, and, and how these things can be counterproductive as we seek adaptation and creativity for the sake of a future that better embodies well-being for all people. All these reflections are on YouTube. If you're just jumping in now and you want to go back and, and hear these more in depth. For this reflection, I originally intended to kind of click to the next step in this train of thought and to start considering some of the temptations that arise out from these natural human tendencies that we have. Um, temptations that we, we really we best um, can see and wrestle with and overcome when we're in the wilderness, when we are disconnected from normal. But, but there's just so much around us going on that begs us to pause and reflect. It feels necessary at this point, as we know so much going on in the world around us, to acknowledge that although this wilderness experience disconnects us from normal physical norms and patterns and interactions, and so our our bodies feel like they are in different places at different times and interacting with other bodies in different ways. We still bring those same self-preservation tendencies with us and we still bring the same hearts and minds with pre-existing norms and ideologies, attitudes, worldviews, and politics with us in these bodies. Those, those still remain. Those are unchanged. 
The uh, stories of the Israelites from the scriptures really um, embody this reality. When their bodies were led out of slavery from Egypt and, and into the wilderness of Exodus, they brought with them hearts and minds that were encultured previously to understand themselves only within the context of slavery. And so even though their bodies were freed, their hearts and minds were not. And in their hearts and minds, they can, they can only imagine wanting to go back to Egypt. The, the uncertainty of the unknown was too much. Later, when the Israelites had um, settled into a nation of their own, they had over time developed certain ideas and feelings and prejudices about other peoples in the world around them. They had been encultured in a different way or in some different ways. When they were then sent off in exile because the Babylonians or the Assyrians came in and stole their things and made them leave, um, and they found themselves in the midst of other peoples from, from other nations within larger empires, even though their bodies were in new places, they, they, they couldn't imagine themselves. They didn't have a heart and mind to match their physical context. They, could only, they only had ideas about what it was to be a nation in isolation. And so their only ideas were nationalistic. They were in new places physically, but they still had the same self-preserving tendencies compelling them in irrational ways. That's what they do. They still had these same heart and mind ideas. In the, midst, in the midst of the exodus and exile wilderness journeys, they had to learn. Um, they had to do the hard work that allowed them to let go of previous feelings and beliefs and structures in their hearts and minds. And they had to learn how to imagine new ones that fit their current circumstances and that fit the future that they knew was best. And this is true of any movement into the wilderness. This is true of our own at this time. The wilderness is a time when we have to acknowledge how we brought the same tendencies, hearts, and minds with us into this place that is the in-between of what used to be normal and, and what we hope will become the new normal. This is the time to name how those heart and mind ideas we, we have because they've been encultured within us may be broken or misguided or ill-fitting for our current, current context. It's the time to bring some renewal and some adaptation to our hearts and our minds. There are a few glaring examples um, in our life together today of this reality that, that call this need um, for renewal in heart and mind forth in some powerful ways um, that call forth this reality that even though we're now disconnected in body from what is normal, that, um, that these tendencies and pre-existing hearts and minds are still with us and they will remain normal unless, unless they are challenged. So this is the time in the wilderness to be present to acknowledge how these encultured norms and structures lack empathy, cause disparity and privilege, ignore the divine will for our freedom, build around antiquated and harmful ideas, and beg a change in heart and mind. 
So first is the shooting. It's the first example. This week we learned about a 25-year-old black man named Ahmaud Arbery, who was shot by a father and son while he was jogging in a Georgian neighborhood. So as the story goes, the father and son alleged that they thought Ahmad matched the description of a burglary suspect. And so their response to seeing him was to grab their guns, jump in their pickup, chase him down, aggressively confront him, and then shoot him as he sought to fend them off. Now this story was essentially covered up and buried for months until the video leaked this week. And because it did, thank God, uh, murder and assault charges have been filed against the father and son, and there might be more filed against their friends who followed them and filmed it all. Now, when we're truly present to this story, and we don't ignore or deny, distract from, run from, or just condone the reality of this story, we see the danger of these human self-preservation tendencies when they're mixed with pre-existing maladies of heart and mind, ideals that are, are just wrong and inhuman. We see in this story the privilege and power dynamic. We, we see that this is just the latest episode in a centuries-long story of whiteness being associated with privilege protected by violence and blackness being associated with denial of privilege through deadly force. The ideologies um, that gave birth to the slave trade, these ideologies of white supremacy and white privilege are still alive and well within our culture. Those pre-existing hearts and minds are still part of who we are as people. And this destructive marriage of self preservation tendencies, and dangerously bad ideologies was on display in the actions of this father and son. The lies of the last 500 years of white supremacy that black men are less human or are violent, it triggered that reactive and non-thinking part of these guys' brains preparing them subconsciously and physically to fight against a perceived threat for the sake of their self-preservation. Now, Maud was obviously not a threat by going for a jog, but these guys' caveman brains missed that memo. Because of the ideologies that have been encultured within them, when they saw Ahmad, they were flooded with negative associations and assumptions about him. This bypassed their ability to think rationally, and they had no imagination that he could be understood in a positive way. Their white tribal instincts kicked in, and they and the friends who followed them and filmed it acted out in the ways that white supremacist tribal ideals had pre-programmed them to act. This father and son may be disconnected in body from what was normal for them during this time, but they brought their sick hearts and minds with them. Mix those ideals with the higher levels of anxiety caused by the pandemic 
and with the fears that they fear have for their own contextual reasons and boom there's this explosion when we hear this story i think it's important for us to to not just think about these two men and how they acted so inhumanely and poorly we also have to ask how do we respond when we hear this story are we are we willing and able to be present to it and to rest in the discomfort of it do we acknowledge how the ideals and structures of white supremacy and privilege are on display in this story do we acknowledge that this wasn't just about their irrational reactive tendencies but also about the racist ideas condoned and and allowed by our society that allowed for this deadly and unjust acting out of their tendencies. Because this um, was not an, an unknown threat in the bushes. The classic example is this the tiger in the bushes. It was it was not an unknown threat. It was an innocent 25 year old man going for a jog, something that I've done in my life countless times. Uh, without ever fearing for my well-being. Do we acknowledge that these men must have therefore felt some kind of cultural permission, um, if not compelling drive to do this? And if not for the leaking of the video, that they would have been allowed to do it. Do we acknowledge that? Do we see the bigger picture? Or do we fail to move beyond the tendency that arises within those of us who are white to fight against the reality or to run and hide from it because that human self-preservation mechanism inside of us tries to trick us into thinking that to acknowledge the reality of white privilege is a threat to us. To try, it tries to trick us into thinking that to be honest in admitting that we have this unfair place and advantage in society will lead somehow to too much being taken away from us. Are we able to overcome that tendency to think that? Are we reactive in response to this story instead of empathetic? Are we distracting ourselves by regurgitating negative associations and assumptions about people of color because it makes this pill easier to swallow? Or are we truly resting in the reality that this was a good man murdered needlessly? Are we compelled uh, to control and sacrifice in ways that extend privilege to the black community? to pursue new ways of socially, economically, politically ordering our life together in America because we've learned that the black community is killed, falsely convicted, over-sentenced, marginalized away from meaningful work, affordable housing, and sufficient health care at rates that are disturbingly higher by orders of magnitude than the white community. Will, will we exercise some of our agency and control for, the, for their sake? Are we willing to acknowledge that governmental, educational, social, and religious institutions have all maintained the conditions in which racist policies and structures perpetuate and condone these realities? Are we willing to seek change within these institutions, within our 
economic, governmental, educational, social, religious institutions? Are we willing to seek change within them? New and creative ways of ordering our life together so that this kind of sinful inequality and injustice is no longer nurtured or condoned? Or do we just want to go back to how things have always been, to those same norms and hearts and minds, intentionally turning our focus away from what we see because it's uncomfortable or just happy to be blissfully ignorant in our place of privilege? Do we want to run 2.23 miles and hashtag that we want justice for Maud, but then not have to actually do anything to change the systems or not actually have to give up any comfort or privilege? For me, I've been silent and comfortable on this for too long. Being in the wilderness has helped me to realize the sin of my silence. Um, I'm going to post a list of a link to a list of things in the description for this video um, that we can actually do newly or differently in response to the reality of systemic racism. That's the first example. The second, the protests. As we all know, many governors have put um, in place stay-at-home orders to slow the spread of the virus, which has quickly thrown us all into this uncertainty and trial in the wilderness. It's caused a lot of anxiety and fear about how we can preserve and protect our lives without the same structures and norms and patterns. You know, if we can't work, if we can't run our business, how are we going to afford shelter and food? Um, obviously, we understand that concern, and we understand that that would raise fear and anxiety in all of us, and that would trigger some of these mechanisms within us. However, this completely understandable concern has led to really irrational, aggressive protesting while strapped with guns. So there's a perceived threat. We all feel it. There are people of privilege who feel that they deserve for their will to be imposed. And when these tendencies to react, to focus on the negative, to tribalize, bypass that rational part of their brains, they're compelled to use violence to protect that privilege. Now, in their irrationality, these protesters are not expressing anger at the root cause of these stay-at-home orders. Root causes like a lack of testing, a lack of contact tracing, a lack of protective equipment, and ironically, people not isolating enough. But instead, they're expressing anger at local leaders. They're shooting the messenger. With this fight-or-flight energy, it's easier to direct at a scapegoat rather than to acknowledge that either one, no one is to blame, or two, that it's too complicated um, to really understand who to blame, or three, that who's really hurting you is someone from your tribe that you trusted. It's easier to direct that fight energy at a scapegoat than at no one or at something you don't understand or someone you thought was your friend. And so here again, we see this dangerous combination of fear-triggered self-preservation mechanisms mixed with ideals and hearts and minds of white privilege. But we also, in this story, see um, this noxious mix of hearts and minds 
that have a radically individualist and self-focused ideology, a nearly anarchist ideal that individual liberty trumps all else and that the absolute sovereignty of the individual is more important than the well-being of the other or the community. The combination of these irrational self-serving tendencies plus the ideas of privilege and this nearly anarchist individualism lead to, lead, have led to so many people essentially saying, I want the right to get this virus and then to give it to you even if it kills you. A third example, um, the popularity of conspiracy theories. This um, virus has obviously triggered self-preservation tendencies with so many of us. The warning bells are going off in our minds, in our hearts. It's putting us on high alert and it's filling us with all this fight or flight energy. Now, consciously and subconsciously, I think we know that we can't run away from this, that flight is not an option. It's literally everywhere we might run to. And so the natural tendency within all of us is going to be to fight. We know we can't flee. And so for the sake of our self-preservation, because we sense a threat, we're ready to fight. We are craving a fight because our not yet all the way evolved brains think that fighting is our only way out of this threat. Yes, we want to fight, we want to win, because we want to be done with this. We want to be alleviated of that fear. When that's true, like with the protesters, it's easier to direct energy and desire to fight a known enemy, even if it's a scapegoat. We don't consciously or subconsciously think we can fight and win against something so complicated that we can't identify it, understand it, or see it. And we don't consciously or subconsciously want to fight and win against someone um, we've come to understand as being within our own tribe. Um, and so our brains have evolved to create scapegoats for us to fight. When we can't really see or understand the threat, or when deep down we know the threat is really someone who's claiming to be for us, claiming to serve us, claiming to be a friend, claiming to be a member of our tribe, we are susceptible then to relieving the pressure building up by fighting against a scapegoat. It's easier for our amped up and fearful brains to point to scapegoats sold to us by easily debunked conspiracies. It's easier to do that than it is to deal with not being able to understand a complex threat or to deal with a threat being posed by someone we thought had our back. The more fearful we are instigated to become, the more likely we are to fall for conspiracy. We just want the relief from the buildup of adrenaline and aggression and readiness to fight that comes from all these natural tendencies within us. We are willing then to let misguided ideas in our hearts and minds aim our fight in destructive and unproductive ways. Ideas of American exceptionalism and privilege lead us to latch onto conspiracies about and then scapegoat foreigners. Ideas of part, uh, partisan political exceptionalism and privilege lead us to latch onto conspiracies about and then to scapegoat our fellow Americans of a different uh, partisan persuasion. Ideas of white exceptionalism and privilege lead us to latch onto conspiracies about and then scapegoat people of color.
when we do this, it isn't because it's true. It's just because it's easier to fight against a scapegoat than it is to deal with the truth. So when we're in this wilderness, and we have three examples like this, we have to pause and ask ourselves, what are the ideas that I've carried within my heart and mind into this strange place where I find myself now? Which of these ideas, when mixed with these natural tendencies I have to self-protect, serve me by harming somebody else? How are these ideas embedded within and condoned by the institutions that order our life together? And what new and creative ways for changing these institutions can we imagine? So that when we get out of the wilderness, our life together is different and better. What can I do right now to contribute to and advocate for those changes? We're broken. We are broken. We are afraid. And there's something within us that thinks that if we lash out against somebody else, or we can be violent enough to impose our will on others, that we will find relief from that brokenness and that fear. But they, these are the lies that the legacy of our evolution, the legacy of white privilege, and radical individualism are, are selling us. Fighting does not alleviate any of the fear or the uncertainty that we feel. It only makes it worse. It only makes us more fearful. And it only causes more harm to those who are the oppressed and underprivileged. It's time to stop fighting and it's time to start fixing. But to do that, we have to acknowledge some of the things that are in our hearts and our minds and therefore in the structures of our institutions need to change. Centuries ago, um, religious leader Isaiah stood up among the Israelites as they were in the wilderness of the exile. Undoubtedly, their fear of being exiled had triggered all these lovely human self-preservation tendencies. Um, and undoubtedly, that compelled them to look for a fight rather than to imagine a different future that was better for them and for those that they're prone to fight. But this is what Isaiah said to them at that time. And, and I offer these words for us to hear today. Do not fear. These waters will not overwhelm you. This fire will not consume you. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. The divine creator and sustainer we call God is compelling a new thing, a new way of being. It is already springing forth. Do you not see it? There is a way through the wilderness, and there is a better day ahead. Friends, um, there is a new way of being already springing up around us, but we have to be present to it. We have to accept it, we have to advocate for it, and we have to live into it. Stay safe, stay home, be well. Peace be with you.